Hey there, everybody, and welcome to Cinema on Tap, your weekly movie podcast with a refreshing selection of movie reviews and industry topics on tap for discussion. As always, I am Scott Lentz, joined by my co-host and drinking buddy, Christian Ubius. Now, Christian, unfortunately, we are virtual once again as we are my dealing with is, the... My, 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 my beer is dripping. Your beer is dripping, Christian. You go fetch uh, a, a paper towel or rag of some kind. I'm... I'm... Can I just put it on my... Uh, do what you gotta do. Do what you gotta I do, just, Christian. Should I just use... It's dripping on my comic book slips. Listeners, send us an email to cinemaontappodcast <laughs> at gmail.com about how Christian should wipe up his spill. Okay, wait, We wait, are, wait, wait. unfortunately, okay. recording virtually because we are separated by the great storm of Los Angeles 2024, which is that, of course, it's raining in Los Angeles, but it's no, okay. actually raining hard and there's some flooding happening elsewhere. So we decided to play it safe and stay, stay in our respective homes as opposed to driving to somebody else's for this particular episode. So Christian, yep. I hope all of our lovely bad. chemistry can, uh, can return to its normal virtual vibes. Oh, uh, the, yes. Um, yeah, this is, I'm, 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 I'm wiping it up. <laughs> I really tried to vamp there about the weather <laughs> while you sopped up some Heineken, but it seems like you're still struggling. No, we're 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 decently good, and it it um oh damn, I'm just gonna throw this little th- slip away. I don't use it anyway. Okay, we're gonna throw that away. How <laughs> did to keep vamping, Christian? No, I, <laughs> I got so much more to say. What? Why? I didn't shake the Heineken. Why did do that? Sometimes. Bad things happen to good people, Christian, and I am here to help you through it. Like in Silver Linings Playbook, all the bad things that happen to his family? Well, sure, but <laughs> there's there's some complicating factors in that film, which we are going to unpack <laughs> today. Or like As all the course... bad things that happen to America and American Sniper? Mm. <laughs> Yeah, I'm sure we'll talk about that, too. Today, it's a, uh, it's a big episode here, folks. As Christian's Bradley Cooper keg is rolling on, we're pouring ourselves a second pour here, getting some more Bradley Cooper Wait, beer. question for you. Yeah. In Silver Linings Playbook, there is a reference to Midnight Meat Train. Did you Dude, catch I, it? I laughed out loud. I was so happy. Um <laughs> Yeah, so uh, so in terms of uh, Bradley Cooper films, we are not covering on this show. The Midnight Meat Train uh, is one of one such film, <laughs> a film of his that came out in two thousand eight, which is a horror movie that he made with Japanese uh, filmmaker Ryuhei Kitamura. Which you know, as uh, horror movies from the beginning of actors' careers, you could do a lot worse than the Midnight Meat Train. But the fact that I watched that movie. And it paid off in Silver Linings Playbook with the the joke, <laughs> like the visual gag of it appearing on a movie theater marquee so you know the movie is set in 2008. Truly hilarious. I'm really proud I watched Midnight Meat Train. <laughs> I'm 20 minutes in. I'm, it's, you know, it's it's interesting. It, it's, it's really basic. It has nothing that complex to say about anything so far. But I'm hoping Christian. that it's thrilling. <laughs> You watched 20 minutes of a movie and you're making some conclusions? 100%. Look, uh, let I'm, me tell you, the yeah. the reason to watch The Midnight Meat Train is right. not the first 20 minutes, but the final 20 minutes. So power through that 90-minute movie and let me know your thoughts this, once you get to the end. This this there there's there's some cleaver like actions so far. Yeah. And and some um 
So the, lo, lo, some blood. Yeah, lo, there's um, lots of uh, CGI blood in that movie. CGI blood going absolutely everywhere. Just, just you wait. A woman who really wants to get into Bradley Cooper's pants. Well, two. To be fair, they're in a romantic relationship and very no, no, much no, in I, love. I, I, I meant the photographer lady. Oh, oh yes, Brooke Shields plays a, a sort of lascivious gallery owner, shall we say. The fact that Brooke Shields is in that movie is kind of bizarre to me. It's a very strange cast for what it is. Bradley Cooper, Leslie Bibb. (laughs) The only one who's there and should be there is Vinnie Jones. And if you know Vinnie Jones out there, folks, you're a real one. But we're here to talk about Bradley Cooper, folks. So, Christian, I want you to speak a little bit on why you selected Silver Linings Playbook and American Sniper as the movies this week. We're moving from the comedy from last week into a bigger period of Cooper's career. Bigger in every sense of the word. So there are a couple of different markers that I believe define some actors' careers. And uh, they can... Some of them everyone knows. I mean, Leonardo DiCaprio, it is hard to talk about him without talking about his first Oscar nomination for Whitney Gilbert Great. Or more than that, without talking about Romeo Juliet. And uh, more than that, without talking about Titanic. Just as what the rise of someone's career, where that took them. Bradley Cooper, there are some uh, there are some staples that you can't talk about his career without mentioning. We haven't talked about it much, but I, I believe his first ever acting role was in Alias, the TV show. Uh, not his first role, to the best of my knowledge. He had made, I believe his first, like, on-film role is an episode of Sex in the City, where he's credited as Jake. And that's I haven't it. haven't seen it. But Alias, his, his, his long time role on Alias kicks off in 2001. Main role, right? Yeah. Okay, so Alias is probably what got him into people's radars. Wedding Crashers, memorable. I would say much more so The Hangover, though. The Hangover is definitely, you watch that movie and you remember that Bradley Cooper is in it. Silver Linings Playbook and American Sniper are the ones that brought him his first Academy Award nominations, the one that established him also as a producer in order to want to push projects forward and be in them if he could. Uh, They are movies that, not that he hadn't been a leading man before, but they're movies that are centering their success on him. They are cultural staples, in a way. And, I, I mean, I texted you that I had given Silver Linings Playbook five stars, five out of five stars. Normally, so, you do not tell me your reaction to movies, even if we're rewatching, unless it's something like Aliens, a movie that I know you love. You told me you love Aliens, you should watch it, Scott. And then we finally talked about it on the podcast. And I wasn't surprised when you said that you loved it on the podcast. But even on some rewatches like this, you hold back your thoughts. This one, you were not afraid to let me know. Give me some time to prep. <laughs> the Okay, I, <clears throat> I'm familiar with some of your thoughts on Silver Linings Playbook from the last time we discussed it. I'm wondering if they've changed, if they've evolved, or if you feel strengthened in them. However, it was, I think, important for me to talk about Silver Linings Playbook as the movie that got... If The Hangover was probably one of the first ever instances where I knew that Bradley Cooper was a thing, Silver Linings Playbook is the first ever instance where I knew that he was a continuing A-list actor. And American Sniper is a movie that, against all odds, because it is 
it, it, it's a war biopic to some extent. It's a controversial movie, and it made bank. And I have very complicated thoughts on that, and even more complicated thoughts on that on this rewatch. But guess yeah. what? I, I will say, I think American Sniper is pretty well crafted. I, I'm, I'm with you there. It is certainly a complicated movie, but very well crafted. Clint Eastwood, I mean, it's his, like, <laughs> he's made, I think, over 40 movies at this point, let alone the number he's acted in. That dude knows exactly what he's doing, and that it is a well-crafted film, undeniably so. And perhaps what's most interesting about it, removed from any uh, controversial elements or uh, divisive elements, is simply the fact that it was the highest-grossing film in North America, or maybe in the United States, at least, in the uh, domestic box office. Highest-grossing film that year, above all franchise stuff, above Marvel movies, above any, any IP. American Sniper beat it at the domestic box office. It was a huge hit. And this is 2014. I mean, this is... Like, the MCU is well-established at this point. We're really in the period of Hollywood where it's, like, original movies getting big budgets are kind of declining in favor of more reliable franchise stuff. So it's a really astonishing achievement in terms, just purely, like, from a business standpoint. And it's also the culmination of this this new phase in his career where he is producing. I'm glad you called that out. One one thing, a movie we're not talking about in a big way on the show is Limitless, which is the first time he's credited as an executive producer. Also, one of his first like true blue leading roles where it's it's him as the main guy. He's in the poster. He's not sharing it with Ed Helms and Zach Galifianakis or anything like that. He's not part of an ensemble like Valentine's Day from the year before, big romantic also, comedy. It's it's bond off its own TV show. With uh, Jake McDorman, who is an actor Who's on American, in American Sniper. Sniper. Yeah, which is funny. And American Sniper is when he is he gets his uh, status within the PGA, the Producers Guild of America, and he's credited as a producer. And he does something with that movie that is a pretty big achievement in Hollywood for actors, which is that he's nominated for producing and acting in the same movie, which has not happened as often as you might think. It's people like Warren Beatty or Leonardo DiCaprio for The Wolf of Wall Street that where this happens. And, and sometimes, sure, you have people who direct themselves to Oscar-nominated performances, but not always producing. It's a really interesting shift for him. And obviously that is that work has continued into this, this current phase of his career where he's credited as a producer on some of Todd Phillips' movies, Joker most notably, as well as uh, other things that he's appearing in. So these two movies really are hugely important to establishing him as a movie star and also as a major player in Hollywood, not just in front of the camera, but behind it as well. And honestly, it's, it's, these experiences are probably some of the things laying the groundwork for him directing his and, he, and writing his own films. It led to him being in a position where he can now choose what he wants to do with his career. And before that, he was probably well thought of, but he was still at the mercy of what other people wanted. And nowadays, it's it's nowadays people will still come up to him and ask him to appear in their projects. I mean, um, the the licorice pizza, Paul Thomas Anderson asking him to be in that movie. That will still happen. He will still act for other people. I mean, he's but he's he's acting for established auteurs. And and you know, this is not to say that the people who make some of the previous movies we've discussed are not 
auteurs in their own right. It's just to say people that Hollywood respected, he is now able to be in that echelon class where they Steven Spielberg seeks after Bradley Cooper now. Yeah, and I think there's a nuance to it too where like some of these movies he's appearing in are with really successful directors. Like David Dobkin directed Wedding Crashers. Nobody's calling David Dobkin an auteur, but that guy has directed some popular movies, some popular comedies. And you are right to point out, though, that he goes from working with certainly established filmmakers and, and working within the Hollywood system to getting more control over what he does and working with much more established filmmakers like Spielberg, like Guillermo del Toro, like Clint Eastwood. It is really interesting to even see how he starts working less over time. You can look back at the beginning of his career. 2009, The Hangover was one of five movies that he appeared in that year. Now, granted... One of them was New York, I Love You. So he basically appeared in a short film. Like a short segment, a, yeah. Yeah, a segment of that movie. But even so, five movies. And we're now in a phase uh, of his career where he is appearing he in three movies. one movie every two or three years, maybe. Right. He makes He's doing like voice work for Marvel, so he's credited in those movies, of course, but he's not on set as long as he would normally be. And he's even making some cameos, things like Dungeons & Dragons. Spoiler alert for that movie, but... He is working less and trying to make, I think, more impactful projects when he does. And you can see that borne out. Just looking at the last few years, 2018, A Star is Born, Best Picture nomination. 2019, Joker, Best Picture nomination. Nothing in 2020, fair. 2021, Licorice Pizza, Nightmare Alley, both of those get nominated for Best Picture. <laughs> so you can certainly see where he is maybe placing some of his time and attention and even his resources as someone who's now an established producer, filmmaker, and actor in Hollywood. And he's – never mind. Uh, I don't want to go into that yet. We've both been able to see a variety of Bradley Cooper performances, both for this podcast as outside of it. I had a question there that I wanted to include as our taster. What do you think are the hallmarks of, of Bradley Cooper as a performer? I have I have my own thoughts. Um, the, the more that I watch it, even looking back at something as early as Alias – he has a gentle voice for for a good chunk and sometimes he'll even lower the the not the register he'll, he'll lower just the module when he explodes it's kind of epic and i feel like he ex he has so much energy that is pent up and that is what i'm recognizing in a lot of these performances he is he is someone who you feel like has something inside that they're waiting to unleash but since he doesn't want to unleash it yet it it, it makes me wonder when when that bomb is going to go off now also this man's uh one of the characteristics of this man is he he has very very piercing green eyes and i think that sometimes the camera likes to rest on it rest on him looking directly into the camera and, and they're very noticeable to me and how his expression many times is blank either because he's internally struggling with something or whatnot but the eyes seem to also be transfixing saying i've got something going on inside of me i might not necessarily tell you what it is but there is something inside of me i don't know if you agree with any of those hallmarks you know, it's hard because, like, you posed that question to kind of think about before we recorded tonight. And what's difficult is that 
as I was watching American Sniper, I really was thinking about how, in a way, underrated his versatility is. And it, it seems to me that he... I'll, now people really are, because of recency, associating him with the earnestness, the give me an Oscar-ness of Maestro, where making a biopic about a famous American with a lot of stylistic flourishes is a, a common route to winning an Oscar for a lot of actors or a lot of filmmakers. And a lot of people criticized him for that, uh, or, or, or at least like acknowledged it as even if they liked the movie. But what I think is interesting about him is that when I start thinking of him as this this sort of theater kid, this person who's kind of too into acting and isn't so naturalistic, then you you see something like American Sniper, where certainly a, a more naturalistic performance, but where he's kind of playing a, a really like gruff part. There's not really any theater kid, quote unquote, energy coming off of Chris Kyle. But then you also think about something like the hangover where he's playing the a-hole and as much as you sort of like love to hate him especially building off of wedding crashers he does bring a little bit of that like brashness to him in a lot of different roles licorice pizza for example he is playing that element of his persona <laughs> like cranked to 11 and you can even see a little bit of it in silver linings playbook where one of pat solitano's key parts of his character is that he has no filter because of his particular struggles he just kind of says what he's thinking no matter how cutting or unkind it might sound to the other person or how socially inappropriate it might be and there is a little bit of that a-hole nature that's channeled into that even if i think it's it's a much more nuanced and sincere performance than something like the hangover which is um you know he is just being the sort of straight man a-hole of the friend group mixed in with Zach Galifianakis and Ed Helms. So when I think about him, I do think about his versatility as something that I love where you might see one of the, something like the Bradley Cooper explosion with like the things behind his eyes start like they, they finally come to the fore and he goes off on someone or about something, or you might just see the, 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 the green eyes and the smirk and the charm cranked up and something even like the A team another blockbuster role where he gets to be the guy who has some of the most fun in that movie playing across from Liam Neeson and he's, Charlton he's Copley and Brad Pitt Jackson. I yeah. think he, the charm does exude off of him. You're very right in that. Even in, in a movie like Licorice Pizza where, where he's, he's just the worst human being, there's something where one of the characters can't help but be really charmed by him and you get it. Or in Nightmare Alley, He's not a good person in Nightmare Alley, but the, he commands a room, and you understand why the people in the room are falling for it. There's something you understand that sort of like seductive nature, not in like a sexual way, but why somebody might fall for him or his or whatever persona the character's adopting. He he doesn't really. There aren't that many sexy things that he will do in a performance i don't think he's really cared about that but the there there there's undeniably a he will he will like whisk someone away okay yeah you know i, I think even maestro that might be part of the intention is playing a, a, just a overly romantic person where that marriage at the center of that movie is certainly not an easy one uh, according to history, <laughs> at least. But he is trying to play into 
his romantic lead possibilities where when you look at a lot of the movies that he's made i mean there are a ton of examples where he either does not have a romance at all or where it's just such a minor part of his character and there's certainly some that i haven't seen that i want to catch up with but that is interesting to think about with that i want us to go into some background information so let's talk about silver linings playbook first and in the in the in the review that we will be discussing we're going to mainly be splitting it up into talking silver linings playbook and how that could have carried over into american sniper just because of personal bias i'm going to focus most of this on silver linings playbook and i hope you understand and guess what we're doing it anyway <laughs> well let's see what i can do in terms of uh trying to make this more balanced but uh, i don't I dislike I texted you. Playbook, that's for sure so <laughs> I, I i texted you do we even need to discuss american sniper and you said yes well christian you scheduled this episode you selected these films and i think you yes. chose wisely as i have said and i think it stands to reason we should unpack them both but you know more power to you if you but uh... i just like one way more <laughs> That's that's why you shouldn't always do two, two on an episode. But, uh, you know, I, I rest my case. I'll, okay. I'll save it. So Civil Linings Playbook came out in 2012. It's uh, What's the best way to talk about this movie? Bradley Cooper is playing a man named Pat Solitano Jr. He's a man who has bipolar disorder and has recently been released from a psychiatric hospital for attacking the man he caught having sex with his wife beating him nearly to death <laughs> he is trying to rebuild this marriage and in his attempts to rebuild this marriage runs across a woman named uh, tiffany maxwell who's played by jennifer lawrence she basically blackmails him into joining a dance competition with her and uh, antics ensue antics indeed <laughs> no okay the budget for this movie was 21 million dollars and, and it the made box back office 235.5 million shout out to 2012 when movie stars doing movie star things could still make a movie 10x its budget at the box office now this movie also came out at the same time as the hunger games and so it was the the double whopper of jennifer lawrence doing what jennifer lawrence does yeah i mean we've been talking of course we've been talking about bradley cooper but you cannot talk about silver linings playbook without talking jennifer lawrence who although bradley is nominated for this movie she actually wins an oscar for her part in this movie and yes is one of the biggest stars in the world right now not only because of the hunger games but also because of x-men first class which came out in 2011 and she goes from part of a massive blockbuster franchise into the leading character in a massive blockbuster franchise while winning an oscar for a completely different movie and also she appeared in house at the end of the street in the same year as those two movies and she's lucky that the, that was nestled in with the other two because I, I don't think i've ever met someone who likes that movie <laughs> i met someone who thinks it's cool that it's is a... maybe the nicest thing anybody has ever said about house at the end of the street <laughs> starring okay. jennifer lawrence so here's here's the thing about it it's it's also got a pretty cool cast so it's got robert de niro it's got jackie weaver it's got chris tucker it's got shay wiggum 
It's got John Ortiz. It's got Anupam Kerr. It's got Julia Stiles. Damn right, it's got Julia Stiles. Julia Stiles doing one of the most important things ever. <laughs> Which is what? <laughs> uh, telling a man that he should not be wearing a sports jersey to dinner. You know, she worked hard on that dinner. She made that house a home. <laughs> Here comes Pat Solitano and his Eagles jersey. Come on. I mean, that's just – what are we doing here? <laughs> now, did I put anything else in the outline about what we're supposed to be talking about regarding this movie? Well, I mean, you did call out the fact that, unfortunately, this movie is written and directed by David O. Russell, who <laughs> is uh, yet another controversial filmmaker who is appearing on this podcast if people are not aware, at the very least, he's been accused of being abusive on set towards his actors. I think George Clooney got almost got into a fist fight with him during the making of The Three Kings. And Notably, he's been accused of some... outline, uh, I also said, I don't want to mention the filmmaker for obvious reasons. Congratulations. Um, and he's been accused of worse things, which is why I don't think he wanted to mention him. So do check that out, folks. Uh, unfortunately, it's the, it's the same principle as watching something like The Passion of the Christ, which... I think is even a little more inextricably tied to Mel Gibson, whereas Silver Linings Playbook is certainly, you're there for Brad and Jen. You're not, uh, well, that's funny. Brad Pitt, Jennifer Aniston. We're here for Bradley and uh, Jennifer Lawrence. <laughs> uh, and not so much David O. Russell, although this was a very, very successful period this in his career This is a very important movie well. for him. This and American Hustle the following year, which brought those two back, was a, a massive success once again, which, which unfortunately for him, his career tails off after that. But um, this is after The Fighter as well, so it's just really uh, big David O. Russell vibes uh, at the box office and at the Academy uh, in terms of Oscar awards. So obviously and, and we're aware is, that he's not a great guy. This is also guy, how but... I've been able to talk about this movie, though. I love this movie so much. I just never mention his name anymore. That's and and people go to their own conclusions regarding how to do it. For me, it's like a, I love this movie and I mention every aspect of this movie, but I just don't mention who made it. And thankfully, I mean, despite obviously being the writer and director of this very successful film, you there's a lot to enjoy from the performances and from other people who worked on the movie. So we can we can talk around uh, the the <laughs> controversial director. Are you ready for your opening question? Fire away. Okay, this movie, though barreled forward by the combined chemistry of Cooper and Lawrence, hinges mainly on Bradley Cooper, Un unless you disagree. But I, I do think that the main character at the center of the story is Bradley Cooper. It requires us to care about his betterment, what he wants to do with his betterment, his overall well-being, him uh, just getting out of the psychiatric hospital, and, and people... People ne necessarily treating him well, and him also just battling with his inner demons. Does Bradley Cooper accomplish us, the audience, caring about his character? Yeah, absolutely. Obviously. What, what, what are we even talking about here? Um, this, is, <laughs> this is a fantastic performance from Cooper, and I agree with you that Although, if you look at the poster, it's got half Bradley Cooper's face, half Jennifer Lawrence's face, and they're both nominated in the leading role category, and she wins and he doesn't. This is very much a movie about Pat Solitano. It, and notably, Tiffany doesn't actually show up in the movie for maybe 20, 15, 25 20 minutes. minutes yeah. yeah, I didn't I didn't check it. And, and we're spending a lot of time with his family. I don't think we know her parents' names. <laughs> and yet, um, 
Pat Solitano's parents were also nominated for Oscars for their supporting roles. So this is four very much... Four people all, in all four acting categories were nominated. Yeah, talking about rare feats at the Oscars, this movie was nominated in all big four acting categories, which does not happen a ton. But yeah, I mean, Pat Solitano is a really lovable character, and he's really someone that you start rooting for. And we're aware of the bad things that he's done, but I think what made this movie so successful at the time was partially due to its treatment of mental illness, which we talked about this briefly on the show a few years ago, actually, as part of one of our streaming recommendations episodes that we used to do. And I think I talked about this then when I'd rewatched it at the time that the treatment of mental illness in this movie was felt pretty cutting edge back in 2012. And I can share more of my thoughts on that now. Cause I know, I, you know, I think it's, it's aged as a lot of movies do as they get 10 years older or more, but the treatment of mental illness at the time was pretty cutting edge and he played a pretty sensitive part, but he did it with nuance and sensitivity just to repeat that word. It's the kind of role where somebody's bipolar in a classic Hollywood film. They, they go from like breaking down, sobbing to screeching to laughing in the span of a couple moments of screen time. It's they'll like, It'll be very big, very broad performances. But this, although it has those mood swing moments, and naturally that is a, a, a symptom of bipolar disease, although there are some of those moments of, of vast emotional change, it's just much more careful in its portrayal of the illness. I'm sure it's not perfect in how it, it portrays bipolar disease, and I'm sure people who either have it themselves or know, have a family member or a friend who does, might be able to speak to that better than I can, but I still think the way that he plays Pat makes him this kind of like lovable screw up who's, and we really get in with his journey to get his life back on the tracks. And yeah, it's absolutely successful at getting us to care about him and care about even like more broadly care about Bradley Cooper as an actor. Absolutely. He is able to accomplish us caring about him, uh, but you knew I would feel that way going in. I mean, I would assume if you gave this movie five stars on a rewatch that you would not think that the, lead actor does a poor job of getting us to care about <laughs> the main character. <laughs> uh, no. Let's talk about it, though. There is so much nuance to the portrayal that Bradley Cooper is giving. And uh, let's go with something. Let's go. Let's divide this up into different scenes. There are some triggers that make him feel exceedingly upset. One of them is uh, listening to his wedding song, which is the song that he caught his wife cheating on him, too. And so whenever that song plays, he kind of stops for a moment and then gets agitated and then follows on to something. It's not an explosion. It is a progression. Or one time he heard it in this movie while he was walking in the street chasing after Tiffany. And then he stops and he kind of just doesn't know what to do. Until someone tells him that he needs to breathe and just breathe through that song. That I do think is something that is handled well where a trigger will not make you respond the same way in a variety of situations, but does make you at least stop and pause and contemplate what it is that you're going to be doing. Let's go yeah. further than that. I mean, let's let's actually <clears throat> stop there, because like okay. what you're saying about the how the explosion is, there's a build-up to it, yes. and it's careful. Like, Let's talk about the scene where he's looking for his wedding video, which is, yeah, I don't know if it's like one, one of the more, I, I guess you would call it iconic scenes from the movie, but one that is well known um 
where there's a couple moments where Pat wakes up in the middle of the night or he's just staying up and his older parents get woken up by him in the middle of the night, either doing something crazy like throwing a book out the window or in this case, looking for his wedding video because he's sort of having this ongoing crisis where he's really trying to get back in touch with his ex-wife despite the restraining order that she has out on him for her own protection. And he's just trying to track down the video. And you can see how the agitation grows and grows and grows as he's first digging around the, the attic or the bedroom where he's staying. He's kind of going through boxes of his old things and just like, you can sort of see the way that he slowly adds in the building frustration with how he is using his body. He moves around the house and starts going other places, looking for the tape and, and waking up his parents. And, and it, of course it starts to devolve once they're awake and involved. And it ends up with actually like a physical altercation between him and De Niro, who's playing his father. And it ends with him crying, saying, "I'm, you know, I'm sorry, I'm so oh, sorry," because he sorry. kind of comes to his senses and understands that he has just, you know, had sort of an episode. And that scene is so well done, uh, certainly by all three actors involved. But even for the, someone the from editing a filmmaking is also incredibly well done. Yes, it's, it's fast. And let me uh, let me talk a little bit about the filmmaking. The, it's it's so frantic. The camera never really wants to stop. There's an incredible use of dolly shots, and sometimes dolly shots are used to introduce a person into into a in, into a scene. What this yeah. does instead is, when there is conflict, there's a dolly shot onto a person very very like a quickly, fast zoom in, right into them, and in, in almost like a barreling into danger and and what this person's experiencing. And even in that same scene, afterwards, the cops are called on that house. Robert De Niro goes outside, and there's a dolly shot into Robert De Niro going down the steps of his house. And it's really, really you're, – you're kind of gripping everything. And it's also laced with a little bit of humor. Um, actually, I don't want to say a little bit. I think this movie is incredibly funny. I think it's hilarious from the moment that we start to the moment that we end. And part of that, I think, is us being uncomfortable not knowing what to make of Pat because when he finishes reading a book, um, a farewell to arms by Ernest Hemingway, it, it's like a slow build of slow cut of all him turning, going into the different chapters, different positions in his room. Then he gets to the end and he just goes, what the, and throws the book out the window, the book goes out the window, smashing <laughs> the window, going into his parents bed and saying, do you know what Ernest Hemingway just did? <laughs> he doesn't say those words, but he explains the sin of Ernest Hemingway giving a farewell to arms a sad ending. It's incredible. Yeah. No, it's it's yeah, it's great stuff. I I'm glad you call it the camera work too, because that's actually something that really stood out to me on the on, on this watch, which I think is the third time for me, though it could be more because I don't really remember how I've many times I've watched like six times, back in I the think. Day. But yeah, the, the cinematographer here is Masanobu Takayanagi, who is a Japanese cinematographer who left university in Japan to come to California. He went to Cal State Long Beach to study filmmaking and has built a steady career in Hollywood. And over the last few years, he's been working mostly with Tom McCarthy and Scott Cooper. If you know either of those directors, he shot Spotlight, for example. But 
in this collaboration, I love the the energy that he brings to the camera, whether it's moving around the room or it's zooming in on these on people or zooming out quickly. Because I think too, like aside from being entertaining filmmaking, providing some visual variety for us, it also helps portray uh, Pat's mental state where when he's starting to feel unbalanced, like the camera will often reflect that in how it's moving or how it's, uh, how, how it's zooming literally, <laughs> um, the editing too, you know, uh, which obviously was not Takayanagi, but, um, the editing, uh, will pick up pace at certain times, like in searching for the wedding video scene. And you, you can start to experience the, the, the way Pat's mind is working, which helps you empathize with him as a character. And again, eliminate that problem of sort of and like watching this this person with a mental illness uh, from a remove, but instead the filmmaking helps us get into his mindset, which is really really yes. effective. It, it's it's moving at the same pace. It feels like his mind is thinking about things. Now, he eventually ends up meeting Jennifer Lawrence's character Tiffany Maxwell. Tiffany Maxwell is is uh, going through, and it's not that explicit but it looks like she's going through a type of grief and depression considering that she's a recent widow. And in that, there's a lot of... Oh, what's the best way to put this? What's the best way to put this? She's more reserved than Pat is. However, she has her own explosions, and it's, it's, it's also a sort of confusion where we see that there are some days where she's so open and she wants to be with people, and other days where she's very closed off, reserved. And that even goes into the scenes where she'll have the moments where she can go and speak kindly to the people who are around the room and other times where she's just hiding away, literally hiding behind her parents. And even just writing that into the story made her feel like the most believable character. But you take a scene like, um, like uh, oh, th when they're having dinner and he orders raisin bran and she orders tea. And then... As they're going through, she realizes that uh, he judges her for some of the sexual mistakes that she has done in her past, or what she considers to be mistakes. Yeah. Like there, it's kind of funny because she starts talking about her past, where in the wake of her husband's death, to deal with the grief, she starts engaging in some casual sex, but happens to do so with the all of the people at her office, female co-workers included. Um, yep. Although yeah, at this point we, we don't you know, kind of just assume that she was a straight woman. Um, and apparently like her sleeping with 11 people in her office is what ultimately gets her fired because there it was causing, obviously causing problems at work. <laughs> and there is some like dark comedy, although you feel for Tiffany's situation with the loss of her husband. <laughs> there is also like you, when Pat calls it out, and he does it in that way where he's so like rough around the edges and unrefined where he's just like 11 people. Are you kidding me? Or he's the one who's like, can I ask a question? She's like, fine. He's like, are there any women that like total pervy question to ask, you know, like Wait, it's so tricky to balance some of these things, but it's also it's so they skillfully can't done. get through a conversation without Bradley Cooper mentioning that her husband's dead. Like, <laughs> <laughs> Which is like that's just flat out funny. Like they they meet, 
at a dinner because her older sister is Julia Stiles and Julia Stiles is married to John Ortiz, who's friends with Pat. And they invite them both over for this dinner, like hoping that maybe they'll help, you know, help the other make a social connection. <laughs> and John Ortiz's character is like, hey, you know, her husband died. Bradley Pat's like, oh, that's terrible. And says, don't ask her about it. And it's like the first thing that he mentions to her when she arrives Wait, he, because no, he can't help himself. I, I think it's like a, I'm really trying to better myself. So how'd your husband die? <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's, like, <laughs> it's, it's that blunt. Okay. You know who really stood out to me on a rewatch, though? Robert De Niro. Robert yeah. De Niro is, is doing this, this um, portrayal of a man who grew up with a father who, who probably didn't show him a ton of love. He keeps almost all of his emotions inside, but does the... Hey, I I just want to watch the game with you. By the way, the Philadelphia Eagles are very are crucial to this movie. This is almost a sports movie. <laughs> this is <laughs> that's that's how crucial football is. Fo- yes, this is almost a sports movie, and all that he wants to do is spend time with his son. But he can't say that. So what he tries to do is get him to just watch the football game with him. I, and, I mean that is even complicated because yes. we come to understand. Uh, that Robert De Niro's character, Pat Sr., that Pat Sr. probably has a minor, or maybe not minor, but like a form of OCD, where he is incredibly superstitious and not only obsessed with the Eagles, but also has gotten into bookmaking, and he's gambling and putting huge wagers down on the Eagles. And so to help them win, he has all these these rituals that he does, like arranging the remotes for the TV and, th- and things in such a way, having... Having the a handkerchief, Eagles handkerchief where like he's always certain, rubbing yeah. it or he's giving it to someone else. And he really genuinely believes that Pat Jr. is good a luck. good luck charm. And Pat is not super interested in football. And so there's this tension between them where Pat Sr. wants to spend time with his son but only knows how to like do it through football. And his nature, like the thing that he struggles with being so particular – often drives a wedge between him and the people of his family because he will get frustrated with them when they get on him about the remotes or when they don't sit down and watch the game in the right spot or something like that. And I really do agree that De Niro is is giving a great performance here. And again, something that could have been so like Hollywoodized and mannered and like painful to watch where you can feel the director walking up to him and saying, your character has OCD. And, and he, they just, like, really play it up a ton. But there are ways where they obviously play it up with, with the handkerchief and the remotes. But there's also some subtler ways, too. And you start to understand the legacy of this family without them needing to talk too much about it. It's, it's a great performance because it gets you thinking about what doesn't happen on screen. It gets you thinking about this family and what, what it must have been like to grow up in their house or to be a young adult in relationship with Pat Sr. You know, it's, it's really great stuff. And I, there's so much that I want to even talk about this movie. Look, let me let me just be honest. Um, there there are more scenes that I just want to talk about and, and say how awesome they are. Like when like the the when they go to the Eagles game against the Giants, and uh, Pat's outside, and uh, some Eagles fans come over and they're really really racist and. They're racist specifically towards a group of people that includes Pat's therapist. And he's there. And the cam- the the camera's like focused on him and there's a little bit of jagged editing between them and the fight that's broken out. Now, he he has a restraint Pat has a restraining order on him from his ex-wife. 
uh, he is it's not supposed to get into a fight the the local cop has already alerted them that he is going to be keeping an eye out on him to make sure he doesn't get into trouble the music spikes up and he's telling to himself he's talking to himself saying don't get in a fight don't get in a fight don't fight don't fight don't fight and then he sees someone hit his brother and then he loses it and what I love about this movie is that it's not like, a, oh, people with bipolar disorder cannot control themselves. No, it's just that they're, they, they're it's like a, they almost feel like they're at war with themselves at the same time that they're trying to, to do what is right. It, it's one of the most humanizing portrayals of what goes on. And, and, oh, this, this, this movie, you're like gripping, you're, you're, you're on the edge of your seat. You're seeking him to, well, you 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 want these these uh, racist fans to f off, but also you want him to be okay, and you don't get to that if you don't have well one that charm that that we've already been talking about that Bradley Cooper has, but also a build up this entire movie a build up of him seeking his self improvement and his self betterment, and us as the audience of watching it. That being said, and and you probably have thoughts on the stadium also. I, I want to talk about the scene that comes afterwards as well when Tiffany here's, goes and confronts them. Here's my one nitpick, Christian. Yes. Football fans as a group, probably there's probably some, some racist elements mixed in uh, to, to football fans. It's a large group of people. Naturally, they're going to maybe have some racist folks mixed in. Football fans, they're not racist to, to each other. <laughs> <laughs> That's the only thing I can think about. And almost like a comedic way of like, you know, football fans, like they would they would die for people wearing their team's colors, but then they'll like <laughs> say something like ridiculously offensive to somebody on the other team. That's my only nitpick about that scene, Christian. Uh, I've heard I, although someone I do think speak on that. I've heard someone what? speak on that. Yeah. They, they've said that the reason why is because they're from Philadelphia. That is com- – yeah. Yep. Shout out to Philadelphia. <laughs> <laughs> I do love the bit um, – the the actor is Anupam Kerr, who's playing yep. uh, Pat's therapist, and I like their. I, I I have some critiques about their dynamic, I should say, but I love them in this scene together, where there's that bonding moment of like seeing your therapist out in the wild, but you're both for a day, you're both Eagles fans, and that's way, more bonding than anything. I don't think he's a good therapist. Like, no, the no, I don't. I don't meet... think so either. <laughs> The second they meet, he plays the song that's supposed to be an aggressive trigger for him just to see if it would, he would still react violently towards it. Which, I, unsurprisingly, he does. Yeah. <laughs> and he like he's, like, providing horrible advice. Like, hey, Pat, maybe if you help Tiffany with this dance thing and you're nice to her, Nikki, your ex-wife, is going to notice and she'll come back to you. Which is, like awful advice let alone like therapy advice like you gotta you gotta help the person on their journey to self-improvement without ulterior motives like you gotta you gotta say like forget nikki we gotta help you become a better man (laughs) and and get your disease under control i don't know i I, I do think he's saying the things that people wish therapists would say which is no don't tell me what i think tell me what you think i should do I think an even more charitable reading is that that those scenes are filtered through Pat's perspective, and it's sort of therapy as he envisions it. I completely disagree with that opinion, but 
it is something that I noticed where I sort of asked myself if I was being nice about some of these ther therapy scenes, which again, they're not terrible. Like Anupam Kerr and Bradley Cooper have a good like interplay. They're both very charming. And I just kind of wished in that moment that it was like Dr. Patel was not his therapist and was just like a neighbor or something <laughs> where they could have these conversations uh, without the added layer of like, this is a terrible therapy. Why is, why is he saying this to a man who has just gotten out of a psychiatric hospital? But you know, okay, that's uh, true nitpick level stuff. So uh, Pat gets Tiffany to agree to take a letter that he has written to his ex-wife, Nikki as long as he joins a dance competition with her now when they were supposed to be dancing he goes to this eagles game because his dad thinks that he's good luck tiffany on seeing that pat is not there goes and confronts him and his family pat's dad robert de niro does not like jennifer lawrence's character he says you are bad luck you are bad juju you're messing up the juju and she proceeds to state all of the games that a Philadelphia team, whether it be the Phillies or the Eagles, has won when the two of them work together. And at the end of it, like, caps it off by un... What, 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 what's the... She pops the cap on a beer bottle and takes a swig. And Indeed it's... she does. And, and look, I'm, I'm all in for, for my Florida team's... The, the, the Dolphins this year were robbed. It's slash. It's just always difficult to be a Dolphins fan. Slash, like screw everyone. However, I you know I, I I don't keep up with everything as much as some of my friends do. If a woman talked to me the way that Tiffany talked in that scene, telling me about how every time we were together, all of my teams won. I would never look for another woman. Like she's it. Just gotta you gotta lock that down. <laughs> I mean, if she's you have it. that kind of kind of luck <laughs> that's 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 one of the that's one of the sexiest things that's ever been put on screen uh yeah jennifer lawrence can shout about uh football scores as much as she wants in my opinion i will and say wait, and then shay wiggum's right there and and everyone by the way this is the most ridiculous scene but football fans are all crazy and and shay wiggum's like nodding it's like a she got pop, a she's pop. making a lot of sense <laughs> yeah <laughs> Yeah, well, I mean, talk about how good De Niro is, too. Like, the way that he initially is so unapproving of, of Pat knowing Tiffany, because he just knows Tiffany is, like, this woman who lives nearby. They know the family, and she's had all these problems. And that's just kind of how he judges her. And watching his perception of her change in the matter of moments after she rattles off all these scores is so funny, because all of a sudden he's like, now wait a minute. Now wait a minute. Um, I, I, that scene in particular, too, it's one of these things for me where it's, it's a little bit of a sticking point because on the one hand, it's a great scene. It's a funny scene. The way that um, J-Law can flip the table uh, or, or yeah, turn the table, whatever you yep. want to say, on De Niro's character is, is just like the stuff you love big, famous movie star actors doing, like acting in a scene together. But it's also like, did Tiffany study the, like remember the dates when she hung out with Pat, study the sports page in the in the Philadelphia Inquirer or whatever newspaper they get out there. It's one of those things where you're just like, now why does she know all these scores and why is she rattling it off so matter-of-factly? Okay, but it's I like, again, you why... you can hate football and be in a football family and therefore know a lot about football. Yeah, I mean, sure. She, she does talk about how she doesn't like football quite a bit in the movie, but it's one of those scenes too where it's like, I love it. 
in a, in one sense. I have to critique it in another, just based on how it plays for no, me. No, you but don't. It, no, you don't have to critique it. Indeed, I do, and I I shall, Christian. But again, like I think you approached this review with some trepidation because I once like in high school when I saw this movie gave it five stars, and as I've rewatched it over the years, I've lowered that, but I've lowered it to four stars. And Maddie even asked me what I thought when after watching the movie because she wasn't able to watch with me, and. I even told her, like, you know, if I could, I'd maybe nudge it up, like, a quarter of a star. Like, not all the way to four and a half, but, like, 4.25, like, I'm there. Just because uh, of how much I love the actors and the filmmaking that I came to really appreciate this time as, as I was watching a little more closely. Whether it's uh, Taka Yanagi as a cinematographer or uh, the editing, which uh, we didn't mention their names. That's Jay Cassidy and Crispin Struthers as a team on this one. Um, you know, the people who also yeah. put together the soundtrack for this movie, the soundtrack's a banger. I, I, um, we, we cannot stop talking about this movie without talking about this final dance, because I think this final dance encompasses so many different things that I love about this movie. Um, look, this, and, and, and I, I don't know why I was scared. I was scared for like a, a decade, it, it seems like, to say it. This is one of my favorite movies of all time. And, and I did not I, – I, I literally did not know that until this rewatch. Or it's like uh, this is a movie that I can rewatch. This is a movie that I can show other people. I think there's a flaw here or there. I watch this movie again and I go, this is – this is incredible. This is incredible stuff. Now, part of that is also a bias, and I'm not talking about a bias towards Bradley Cooper. I'm more so talking about it's so unapologetic in saying that these people have um, – something going on in their heads stress anxiety depression bipolar grief de like the, the list that can go on and on sometimes multiple of those and as as you know I, I've, I've faced my own struggles with uh stress anxiety and depression and uh, to see that that uh it, it was at the forefront, but it was more so someone just trying to find love, despite how quirky they were. Puts the biggest smile on my face when I see this. Um, now, this dance scene is off to a rocky start because uh, Nikki, Pat's ex-wife, is there. And Tiffany, and we all know this at this point, Tiffany's in love with Pat. We just don't think that Pat's in love with Tiffany. Now, she goes off. She uh, starts to drink a couple vodkas. She is talking with someone. She can't be found uh, until right before the dance. And she's sad. And then they dance. And this dance is is, is okay. And at times, it's about, quite uh... poor. Five out of ten, essentially, uh, as the judges <laughs> decree. <laughs> no, 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 no. So, so in order for Pat's dad, Pat Senior, to win a bet, they the Eagles need to beat the Cowboys, and uh, um, Tiffany and Pat Junior need to get at least a five out of ten on a professional dancing competition. It's it's what's something we have not really talked about much is one of the best things that's aged about this movie is the fact that sports gambling is so key to its plot <laughs> now in 2024 when gambling is starting to be legalized all over the place and not just in los angeles and we are as a society becoming much more familiar with gambling terms <laughs> it's just so funny where there is a scene where uh 
Pat Sr. and his gambling buddy Randy are wagering on football and decide to do a parlay where they parlay the dance competition and the Eagles-Cowboys game. And Dr. Patel is like, who is who is there for of course some reason and he's like wait can somebody please explain a parlay <laughs> and it's just so funny where now i'm like oh i could tell you dr patel i know what a parlay bet is but yes they they are wagering on football and the dance competition which is ridiculous and fantastic because the eagles crush the cowboys and everybody goes running in to the hotel ballroom where this competition is to watch they, the dance the, their run in to this is amazing. De Niro, like, literally 70 something year old De Niro, or maybe 60 oh. at this point, but like scooting in that hotel. <laughs> it's, and then, and then this dance is, is, is okay. There's a lift at the end. That lift at the end, it turns into Bradley Cooper's face and Jennifer Lawrence's groin for like five. <laughs> and I love that moment because they sort of <laughs> like, they sidestep the, the Hollywood ending because they practice that lift earlier in the movie and they're struggling with it because obviously it's difficult. She's trying yep. to jump up and like wrap herself around his neck. And it's just, it's hard for people who aren't professionally he, he trained dancers. He needs to work on his shoulders. His <laughs> shoulders are not his chest. He needs to work on shoulders. And so you're thinking that they're going to like nail this and it's going to be like, it's going to be like the moment where like they win the judges over and they get some nice scores, but of course they don't nail it. They totally screw it up. And, <laughs> and yet they manage to like play it off and, and they just, and okay. it's oh, yeah, one yeah, of those yeah. nice moments and where they undercut the normal, yes. like Hollywoodizing ending and still sort of get us where we want to go. The scores come in. There are four judges. They need to average out to a five. First judge says 4.9. Second judge says 4.8. Third judge says 4.9. At this point, we cut to a dancer that's next to them and go, I'm so sorry, guys. It's too bad. That's a lot of force. We cut back to the fourth judge. She go, lifts up 5.4 for an average score of a 5. There's like a two-second pause, and then Pat and Tiffany raise up their arms and start yelling, and like Pat Sr. and Jack, you're yelling and his brother's yelling and they rush the dance hall. And it it's chaos and everyone's like a like like the announcer says, What why are they so happy about a five? And this moment almost of like un an uncontained joy seeping out because they did win the the bet, but also it it's it's a culmination of self-betterment, almost like if you could evolve in levels of therapy, this was the evolution to the next step. It is a, a great way to get to the ending of the movie because it's not quite over at this point. There, there's a lot of wrapping up to do, but it is, it's just such a fantastic moment. It's like a shot of adrenaline. Bradley Cooper and Jennifer Lawrence's faces when they hear the score, absolute perfection. It's lit. like I don't know how they made their mouths as big and as like excited as they did, but they're making the most hilarious, excited faces, and it's just such like a great way to end the movie too. And I think they're even. I don't know how much of like how many nods there are to Philadelphia in general. Uh, like the diner that they go to, I think is called Landreich Diner, and that's like kind of a, a local spot. Uh, in, in this area of Philadelphia, but like Rocky, it, it, one of the most iconic movies set in and about Philadelphia ever made. Um, obviously, you know, not that there are like an enormous amount of movies that are like about being in Philadelphia, but like Rocky, the underdog, the guy who didn't win at the end, but like kind of still got that moral victory. 
that is their Rocky moment where they performed terribly in general, but they did enough to succeed on their own terms and win the bet, which is just fantastic. <laughs> There's, oh man. And right after this, just like uh, Robert De Niro develops the speech, which is uh, something about when life hands you this opportunity, it's a sin to not look at it or not take it. Um, that moment. woman loves you, but she sure as hell doesn't love you right now. Uh, uh, the the Pat going up to talk with Nikki, and even though you think he'll end up with Tiffany, you're still kind of scared that he's going to choose Nikki and what that means. Him chasing after Nikki, the after Tiffany, I mean the revelation that he's known that Tiffany was lying to him this whole time, and then like the little coda of them snuggling together, and this must have been almost right after this happened. Um. And uh, and he's er yeah she, he is sitting on an armchair and she comes up and settles next to him and everyone else just kind of looks over at them and smiles. There's so much smiling in this movie, it it's infectious and also we have been talking about this movie for one hour. We have not unfortunately we've been talking about it for like thirty minutes, but <laughs> it's we are at an hour on our respective timers, which means it's time to talk about American Sniper. Hey oh, a little bit is of it, a is it time. A little bit of a downshift. <laughs> it is time, Christian, because you have had a long time to plan this, and you planned an episode where we would talk about these two movies, and I watched them both in the same day to be ready to record on them both. If you want to clear out, let me do 10 minutes on American Sniper. Not even. Do five, six minutes on American Sniper. I'll do it. I'm just saying. We got to talk about it. Okay, okay. This is this is what I want to do. Let's Let's do... Let's let's I uh, let's do this. I will ask you your question on American Sniper. It's pretty simple. It's simply um Oh man, how do I ask this? Does Cooper effectively lead it the movie American Sniper? Now, let's give a little bit of background information also on American Sniper now that we're an hour into this recording. So American Sniper comes out in 2014, and its release date is actually Christmas Day. Now, this movie is based on a memoir called American Sniper, and which is about a man called Chris Kyle, who was a Navy SEAL. And is uh, I, I think he's reported to have the most kills for a Navy SEAL or just person ever he is both both officially and unofficially in some respects the deadliest marksman in u.s history right uh, part of his story is that he has 160 confirmed kills which he alleges it was even more than that um so yes that that is his claim to fame and there, this this movie is tricky in a lot of ways this movie is tricky in a lot of ways let me I, i'm not going to go into that right now let me go into some of the other background information now, this movie was made for $59 million. It made $547.4 million. Most of the money that it was able to make was actually in January. So this was a massive January hit at the box office because its wide release was on January 16th. Um, and it also had six Academy Award nominations, including Best Picture and Best Actor for Cooper. Directed by Clint Eastwood, yes. Um, let's just talk about the performance to begin with bradley cooper playing chris kyle yay or nay yay i mean again this is like to me this is this is probably one of his best performances this in is one my, of his best my performances. um it's, it's despite way my more reservations subtle than you would yeah. think a navy seal would do he does not get angry that often 
well, I mean, I, I don't know if I would necessarily. Oh, well, now I'm second guessing myself. I, I think in some respects, it's like kind of he plays it straight, where it's like Chris Kyle was a guy from Texas who sort of fancied himself a cowboy and joined the military and in light of some of the things going on in the world at the time and uh, a lot of guys who share that mindset with him were you know a little bit more naturally conservative a little more naturally patriotic uh, and joined out of sort of semi-honorable intention to like defend freedom and defend the country um it's, it's one of those where i don't doubt that they believe they were doing the same thing this movie is so incredibly skewed patriotic, even in times when it doesn't want to be, it can't escape that. And, and and the only reason I say that is because it's it's melodramatic at times. Like the um th there's an overuse of the word savages to describe the people living in Iraq. Indeed. Indeed there is. There is almost everyone in Iraq is their enemy except for one family and that family ends up being killed um there are primarily white people in this navy seal squadron and, and you know what let me I, I won't ding them for that like i'm sure that there are primarily white people in the navy seals um some of the scenes in which they're just looking at the news and the news is talking about confirmed deaths of americans and how that is what spurs on Chris to want to join I don't deny that that's what happened it's shot very much in a in, in a um <laughs> it, it doesn't feel like a documentary it feels like other people should be this horrified by this as well yeah it, it's very much not a documentary but it's also like it is desaturated like there is the the colors are barely muted. there uh muted. like midnight yes. me train to uh not not in the same way, though. <laughs> <laughs> Midnight Matron is overexposed, uh, whereas this is uh, not that. Bleak. Uh, um, bleak is a good word for it, yes. And I think a, a major part of the inspiration for Bradley Cooper to make this movie, at least something he was quoted as saying, is that he wanted to really draw attention to the the mental health and the after effects of war for veterans. And Chris Which Kyle... Which he does very well. He does very well. It's part of the strength of the, the, the performance where... Chris Kyle, whether through his autobiography or through, you know, talking to the people in his life, um, dealt with a lot of PTSD and uh, some serious problems based on his time in Iraq. He served four tours of duty during during the war. Um, which is a lot, which is much. Yes. A good chunk of time. And uh, Kyle himself devoted some of his time once he was fully back stateside and no longer going to war um, honorably discharged from the military, spent a lot of his time working with veterans of the war, guys who had been severely wounded or who were also dealing with mental health issues in the wake of things. And not really a spoiler to say, just sort of the facts of history, is that he actually was murdered uh, by one of these veterans who was dealing with some severe mental health issues, and Kyle was trying to help this guy out. And he and another um, former military friend were murdered uh, trying to help this guy. And so Cooper really... Uh, I think Clint Eastwood as well was quoted as saying something similar, trying to make this movie about a real American soldier that limits some of the uh, Hollywood sort of action movie tropes that a lot of war films can get into, or like big dramatic speeches, like swooning sentimentalism, really opting for a much more muted and grounded and serious story of a, of a soldier dealing with the 
what happens to him uh, based on his time at war. Ultimately, I think my opinion on the movie is really shaped by how effectively it, or not effectively, it, it achieves that. And so I don't know how much more you wanted to say before we kind of briefly, I'm sure, review the movie. But anything else you wanted to add, Christian? It's <laughs> one of those few times where uh, part of when I was watching this movie, part of me thought, is this movie dangerous to show to someone? And... Um, I I think that the craft is really well done. I think that Bradley Cooper's performance is, is elite in this movie. And yet, watching it, 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 it did leave a bad taste in my mouth. Um, I'm not saying I would never rewatch this movie, but I, it, it's going to be a bit before I rewatch it. Let's delve into... Let's delve into more. Bradley Cooper got really big for this movie. He's yoked. He is quite jacked. He is very, very jacked in this film. His voice doesn't go above a certain register, above a certain type of volume. He's got this slight physical thing he's doing where he's kind of he, he's doing the Texas draw and kind of talking out of the side of his mouth. Not not really cartoonishly, but uh, naturally adopting it uh, to, I, I assume, to sort of speak the way Chris Kyle spoke. Um there's and, a lot of blank uh, stares yeah. on his face. Yeah. He doesn't showcase that much emotion, which I think helps in his physicality. And again, his eyes are doing a lot of work. When he is with his sniper rifle and he's waiting to see or judging whether or not he should use it, the camera's okay just resting on his face. And his face is... Uh, He's almost like begging them not to give him a reason to kill them. And you believe it because he's scary as he's doing it. Because he knows he can kill them. And we know that he can kill them. Yeah, it's his uh, his job naturally is quite difficult. Where he is being asked to make these judgment calls about who deserves to live and who deserves to die. Which is one of the awful parts of war. Uh, but especially for a sniper who is someone who is providing Overwatch and keeping an eye on a larger picture uh, uh, of things. And as Kyle says, his the way that he got through his military service is really genuinely believing he is there to protect the soldiers on the ground. And sometimes doing that meant he, ha obviously, uh, he had to kill people. And it is, I, I totally understand why you wondered about this movie, wondering, is it like a dangerous movie? Um, being in the mind of this person. And I, I think I might, I mightly know on that because Chris Kyle, of course, was a real person and a real person who deserved sympathy and empathy like any other real person. Um, and I think Bradley Cooper, to his credit, is trying to portray this guy as more than just a killing machine and rather as someone who was was made, someone who was formed, didn't just like emerge out of the womb like this, somebody who goes to war and becomes something, but also has to deal with the consequences of that. Um, and those judgment, like those scenes where he's trying to make a judgment call, not always difficult for him, but you, you do see the couple of moments where, uh, in particular, when there are young people or even children involved, where he is like begging them not to do what they are seemingly trying to do it's uh it is it's a heavy heavy movie that is for sure and not only that 
when he can't uh, he encounters a veteran when he's at an auto shop with his son played by jonathan groff of all people played by <laughs> jonathan made groff. me chuckle <laughs> king george from hamilton folks uh christoph from frozen <laughs> uh yeah that's that's him and show thanks him for saving his life and shows him how his leg is now prosthetic and uh, he can't process that information he he he, he He's, he's in the habit of saying fine a lot. Chris Callum in this movie is in the habit of saying fine. And Bradley Cooper, in embodying that, also... There are time. The only times that we see him laugh are when he's with other veterans or when they've just narrowly escaped something, when there's a success. But those times are very, very few and far between. He doesn't even truly laugh when he's with his family. And you can see that there's like a blockage inside of him where he needs to come to term with the realities of war and there are casualties. He, he wants to do the Don Quixote thing where he wants to do the impossible dream and save everyone, but he can't. And that's what this movie is truly grappling with when it comes to him. Now, it looks gorgeous. The movie looks absolutely gorgeous. And it's so, the editing is very quick. The story is tight. It goes from the place that it wants to go to the other places. It's 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 very well done. I I don't know if I would agree. The movie looks gorgeous. I think it doesn't quite intentionally. And like again, the way that they're desaturating colors and the way that they're well, that in some respects I mean. trying to like de-romanticize some of the the things that are happening. Um, but I do agree. The like image very looks good. Yeah. Uh, but I do agree with the idea that it's um, like. It's very economical, and I really wonder. This is written by Jason Hall, and I wonder how much of his script uh, was shot as written, and how much of it was Clint Eastwood, because Eastwood has this reputation as uh, like like a guy who shoots from eight to twelve, breaks for lunch, shoots from one to five, goes home to dinner, and it, it's always done. You know, two days uh, under schedule, and some of these scenes, like there is, it is a movie that is over two hours long. It's like two hours and ten minutes, and there's not an ounce of fat on a single scene in this very movie. lean um it is incredibly lean yeah and, and those are the kinds of things that i can certainly appreciate as a person who watches a lot of movies like can ap- appreciate that particular um choice being made by a filmmaker here in eastwood and again i think yeah. sometimes Did you see the baby uh yes yes i did infamously that... there is a, a prop Impressive. baby yep. during Cause... one of these the scenes in between kyle's tours of duty and the real yes. baby was sick that they were going to use. The second baby was um, they couldn't find, and so they had to rely on the prop baby. Yes, uh, rather did not come to set. Uh, it's not that they lost the baby, but the, that family did not show that day. So yes, prop baby. Uh, yes, it looks bad, but um, I I think for some people it's I I just I'm not the kind of person who tries to harp too heavily on things like that. In the same I way where I can say funny like, now. I just like yeah, like eh. I can nitpick Silver Linings Playbook, but acknowledge like this scene is good, but like why does Tiffany know all the scores? But this scene is still good. Um, you know, I, I think with American Sniper, just to kind of like not not dwell too long and, and wrap things up here. Something I thought about a lot while I was watching the movie is this famous Francois Truffaut quote, the the French director and writer and critic. I am not sure if I've mentioned this on the show before or if people listening at home, like you may have heard this before, Christian, you might also have heard it, but he very famously said, 
uh, that it's impossible to make an anti-war film. And he really believed that uh, the quote is like, to show something is to ennoble it. And he believed you couldn't make an anti-war film because you are implicitly ennobling war, either by having the heroic soldier who stands up uh, against evil or bad you know, other side of the war or stands up to his corrupt superiors or because you patriotically show your side winning the battle, whatever it is. He really just did not believe you could make an anti-war film. I disagree with that in general because I think Plenty of filmmakers have made anti-war films over the years, movies that you watch them and you think, I hope this never ever happens to me or my children or my children's children. I don't want, like, we need to, <laughs> nobody should go to war. Uh, there are movies that make you feel that way. I think my my biggest problem on a rewatch of American Sniper, because I saw this in the theater and I really liked it at the time. On a rewatch with that quote in my mind is that I really did feel that despite Cooper and Eastwood's intentions, I think it is weighted too much towards Chris, like Chris the Legend Kyle, which is this nickname that he starts to develop, and less about Chris Kyle the Wounded Warrior, this guy who was um, it, broken. It and is so skewed. You're completely right. It is so skewed. Yeah. And during times when he, in the middle, like when he meets Jonathan Groff's character, it almost immediately cuts to him going on another tour of Iraq. It, it, like it and and I'm sure that this is how Chris Kyle handled it, that instead of dealing with his issues, he just decided to do another tour. However, in that movie, it, it, it almost felt like it was trying to skirt away from that issue because that's what happened, that we only get 10 to 15 minutes. Literally, it's him going to a therapist, them saying, I have some wounded soldiers here do, that need saving. Do you want to help them? And that's like a pretty bow that it's putting at the end of the movie. Whereas it, it, it's too neat. It's way right. too neat. It doesn't give me resolution. It doesn't give me the thought process. It makes me think if someone had just done that an hour and a half earlier, we wouldn't have needed the last hour and a half of movie. And it, it, it's to a point where I, I don't hate the movie. I certainly still think it is effective, well-crafted, and I really believe in that Cooper performance. It's just really great work as an actor. Um, I don't think it stops on a dime to like shift into this anti-war mode, but... Um, I, I do think, like you said, it's it's skewed and it's improperly weighted. Um, I think what's interesting is that Chris Kyle's got a younger brother named Jeff who also joins up. He joins the Marines and they they really have a few scenes like early in the movie. They run into each other at one point where Chris is arriving for a tour of duty and Jeff is leaving one of his um, tours. And they kind of have this moment where Jeff is, is essentially tells him like he hates it. He, he wants to go home desperately. He is really, really struggling. And Chris is like conflicted because w what is sort of like provocative is that he comes alive in, in some ways when he's back at war with his comrades, like with his brothers in arms. And he has a hard time being at home because all of a sudden he has to deal with everything going on in his mind. And there's something there. But I think that, unfortunately, like Eastwood, whether it's Eastwood as director or Jason Hall's script or Cooper's intentions as actor-producer, or even just like the inherent problem in adapting a patriotic soldier's memoir is that you are going to have more time spent at war and you are going to have more exciting battle scenes that are fantastically shot and gripping and tense, but also start making me wonder like man what are the intentions here are we really trying to to comment on the what happens to soldiers at home or are we more 
focused on the the valiant things that they did. It, it's it one of those where I wish it had opened movie. itself up to not just be a Bradley Cooper vehicle, but to be one for the other soldiers. Because these other soldiers, some of them are just killed, and they're going through, and they're in hospital beds. And we cut away from that to more scenes of war. And that part of that is because the movie is resting on Bradley Cooper, who's doing a phenomenal performance, but it's like the movie itself suffers from not being able to include their perspectives in what we're doing. Like the one black soldier that we see there, who even in the beginning, they ask him, what kind of black are you? And he goes, I'm a new black. And that's how he announces himself as like entering the, the, the Navy SEALs. It's like a, he will do stuff for his countrymen. And that is an interesting story in and of itself that we don't get that much. And I'm sure that in real life, he probably didn't talk much more about that. However, there's there's so many nuances that, that, that we cut away from. And I wish that the camera had just lingered there, that the script had given a little bit more too. Um, yeah, I think to like wrap it up, yeah. that like the nuance is there, but for whatever reason, they, they like whether it's Eastwood's economy or the inherent flaws, like I mentioned, of the adaptation process, like they don't dwell on it enough to to get to this stated intention from Cooper and from Eastwood about thinking about these wounded veterans and you know, guys dealing with after effects of war. So it, it's certainly like a well-made and effective film in some respects. Uh, at other times, it, it does not do what it set out to achieve. And it's complicated. And I, and I certainly encourage people to watch it um if if they are open to it if they maybe need to rewatch it and kind of refresh themselves or if they have never seen this and like bradley cooper or like clint eastwood whatever it is uh it's streaming on max as of now so if people do want to check it out as we're going through our month on bradley cooper they certainly can do that any uh anything else american sniper christian before we wrap things up here no i think i'm good i think uh i'm excited because uh, Silver Lightning's Playbook, one of the best movies that's ever been made. And we were finally able to talk about it. We are now moving on from Silver Lightning's Playbook and American Sniper, two majorly important movies for Bradley Cooper's career. And we march on in the, the career of Bradley Cooper as we pour ourselves one final beer before we pour uh, several to wrap up the month. <laughs> and we'll get into our, our Bradley Cooper tasting flight. But Christian, naturally, our guy moved from acting into acting and producing into writing and directing, which means next week the movie is... The movie is A Star is Born. Which... Christian, uh, yeah. I'm uh, off the deep end. Watch as I dive in. I'll, I'll, I'll never, never leave the ground. I'll yeah. never leave the ground, Christian. I am really excited to talk about A Star is Born. First time rewatch for me since seeing it in theaters. Have it's not a movie seen it that since I, I saw it in theaters, yeah. That I think very fondly of, and I'm really excited to see again. We'll see if it works as well for me at home as it did in the theater. But, Christian, is it streaming anywhere that you know of if people are trying to check it out at home? I'm going to go to a theater to watch it. <laughs> yeah, they're, do they're doing a, a repertory screening out here in L.A., uh, one of the theaters out here is showing that. I think you said it was sort of in conversation with Maestro at being his second feature, his newest, and now competing for Oscars of its own, if it I'm is, remembering correctly. but That's true. Now, A Star is Born is not streaming anywhere. Okay, you know when they're – in this repertory screening for, for Bradley Cooper's career, do you know when they're showing Silver Linings Playbook? When? This upcoming Sunday at 5 p.m. That which... is unfortunate. <laughs> Because the actual Super Bowl is happening this Sunday at 5 p.m. Very funny movie to put in that slot, I have to say. <laughs> because I feel like many people, like where the movie and sports lines intersect, 
you've kind of driven apart more. <laughs> that is too bad for the folks who want to watch the Super Bowl but really love Silver Linings Playbook. Uh, but of course, next time on the show, we will be talking about A Star is Born. And instead of doing two movies, we're only going to be talking one. It'll be fully devoted to Jackson Maine and Allie, and it's going to be a good time. Uh, it is not streaming anywhere but rentable pretty much anywhere you can get movies, so check it out there, and then we'll talk about it on the show next and week. Honestly, you've probably already seen it. You know That's why? That's true. Because we used to be a proper country. A lot of people did see that movie. This is true. Uh, Bradley <laughs> Cooper, can uh, he, he can make a successful film, Let, let's, let's just say. I mean, guess what, y'all? You all saw Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3. I know you did. So, <laughs> all right, Scott, do that thing you do. Do that thing I do, which is the outro of the show. So, of course, if you have hung around as we've been talking silver linings, we've been talking sniping, wow, thanks so much for being here, listeners. We appreciate you. Of course, there are a few things that you can do to continue to support the show, which is, of course, number one, please do subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a rating or a review, if applicable. Obviously, it makes us feel warm and fuzzy inside to see those positive reviews coming in, but also helps us reach new listeners on all of those platforms. So, all those reviews are greatly appreciated. You can also send us an email, which I mentioned at the top of the show, actually. But to remind you, it is cinemaontappodcast at gmail.com. We are regularly checking that email inbox, looking for listener feedback, whether it's because you have thoughts on a movie that we covered and wanted to make that known, or you have an idea for a keg that we should tap, whether it's an actor, a director, a genre, or something like that. Or maybe there's a movie that we have not covered under one of our themes that you want to hear about. Like, we didn't get to talk about Limitless. And maybe you think, yo, you guys should watch that again. Tell us what you think. We love to do that for you folks. So do send us your thoughts to cinemaontappodcast at gmail.com. Again, we'd love to get some listener feedback there. You can also follow myself and the show on Twitter, Christian on Instagram, and the both of us on Letterboxd, where we are regularly rating and reviewing the things that we are watching. You can read all of my thoughts about the Midnight Meat Train up on Letterboxd. And Christian, any uh, thank you. Any any thoughts? Uh, any reviews coming to your letterbox anytime soon, Christian? I promise to make a review for A Star Is Born. In on A Star Is Born, I remember I watched it when it was re-released, not during the original release, because they re-released it a couple months later. And uh, I had a playwriting class, and at the beginning of the playwriting class, they said, "Does anyone have any announcements for the class?" And I raised my hand and I stood up and said, guys, A Star is Born was re-released with 12 minutes of additional footage. You should so all So what you're it. saying, Christian, is that you've always been this way. It's not just something you do for the show. I, I don't understand what you mean. I think folks at home do, Christian. I think folks at home do. But, of course, he's Christian. I'm Scott. And until next time, this has been Cinema on Tap. Thanks for listening.